Hello and welcome to Jamming Digital, which offers insights, analysis and commentary on all things digital in Brussels and beyond. My name is Evelina Kurgonaite. I am a seasoned Brussels Bubble Insider, a former journalist and a digital policy enthusiast. Today, I am talking to Thibault Schapel. Thibault is an Associate Professor of Law at VU Amsterdam and a faculty affiliate at Stanford University's Codex Center, where he created a computational antitrust project that brings together over 65 competition authorities. He holds several other research and teaching positions, but perhaps most importantly for today's purposes, Thibault is a blockchain expert appointed to the World Economic Forum and the World Bank. And that's not just the title, because Thibault has dedicated a lot of his time researching on blockchain antitrust and computational antitrust. He has also written the world's most downloaded antitrust articles in four subsequent years and published a book on blockchain and antitrust. And so I'm very excited to welcome Thibaut to Jamin Digital today to talk about, surprise, surprise, blockchain and competition law. Welcome, Thibaut. Thank you very much. Most listeners of this podcast will have a clue of what a blockchain is. But just in case any of them need a reminder, could you briefly tell us what is the blockchain technology and how it works? Can you give me three, four hours to discuss that? <laughs> I, think I, feel, I, feel, I feel we don't have that much time. <laughs> okay, I'll do in in two minutes. I'll try my best at least. I think what's important to keep in mind, especially for lawyers, is that blockchain is a technology with different layers. So you really need to visualize layers build on top of each other. And of course, each layer will benefit from the characteristics of the layers that are below. So for that reason... Of course, you need to start with the layer one because it will impact all of the other layers. I will come back to this idea. Uh, the layer one of a blockchain is basically a database with very specific characteristics. The first characteristic of the database is that it is decentralized. Now, the word decentralization should automatically trigger another word, which is the one of control. Who controls the blockchain? And here you could put it in two different ways. You could say no one controls the blockchain or everybody controls the blockchain. So what it means to be very concrete is that you have a database, uh, some information will be put inside the database. And once it is there, no single user can delete the piece of information. So that's characteristic number one of the database. The second one, blockchains at the layer one level are distributed. And here distribution means location. Where is the blockchain? And the answer is everywhere. So if you want to, for example, download a copy of all of the Bitcoin transactions ever uh, ordered, you can certainly do that. You go to bitcoin.org and you download the software and then you allocate some free space to download a copy of it. So that's characteristic number two. The third characteristic is that blockchains are uh, pseudonymous. What it means is that when you use the blockchain, your real-life identity does not appear. So you wouldn't see Thibaut Schrepel send a Bitcoin or Ether to X person. 
what you will see is my blockchain identity. And it looks like a bunch of letters and numbers. It's my public address. It could be a bit technical, but the basic idea is that my real life identity is protected and you only see my uh, pseudonym on the blockchain. And the fourth and final characteristics, and I guess it actually comes out of the first three, is that blockchains are immutable because of decentralization, distribution, and pseudonymity. So what it means is that once you've put information, you cannot get rid of the information. And if you want to get access to it, you can actually get access. No one can change the rules and decide one day that you won't get access to it. So that's the very basic idea of the layer one of the blockchain. So again, database. Now, on top of that, you can plug softwares and applications it's not the layer two because the layer two is something, it's a technical layer, but you could refer to that as the app layer. So what it means is that if I want to design a social media that will run on top of the blockchain, I can do that. And what it means is that every time someone uses my social media, it will generate some data that will go inside the layer one. And my social media will take back this information to evolve and continue to progress. So that's the very basic idea of what is a blockchain. Again, it's a technology with different layers. You can make distinctions between many more layers, but if you use those terms, layer one and application layer, everyone will know what you are talking about in the in the space. Sounds like these characteristics also can play a role in the competition analysis. And I guess we will come back to that in a minute. But I, I reckon there are different types of blockchain. And those differences also play a role in whether and to what extent antitrust law, as we know it, might apply. I guess pretty much everyone has different theories as to how many blockchains there are. Some people would say blockchain does not exist because every blockchain is different, which is a fair point. But I guess you can make the same point for for firms, actually, right? Every firm is different. So in my understanding, there are at least three different types of blockchains where you could categorize pretty much everything that exists today. The first one are the public and permissionless blockchains. What it means is that when the blockchain is public, everyone can access the blockchain. Bitcoin is a good example. As I just told you, if you want to see the inside of the Bitcoin blockchain, you can do so. You just Google or Bing or DuckDuckGo, Bitcoin Explorer, And you will see many websites that will actually show you what's happening real time. So public is one and permissionless means that everyone can use the blockchain and also becomes one of the the miners. So those are the persons validating the transactions. Again, it could be a bit technical. We do have antitrust cases, so I'm more than happy to, to explore that. But for now, let me just stick to this idea that if you want to use Bitcoin, buy Bitcoin and exchange and why not send me a Bitcoin, uh, you can do that. The second one is public, so anyone can see the inside, but permissioned if you want to validate the transactions, such as one person send a Bitcoin to another, well, you need someone to validate that transaction and put it inside the layer one. If the blockchain is permissioned, only selected users can validate those transactions. A good example would have been Facebook cryptocurrency, initially called Libra and then eventually DM, and now it uh, kind of uh, disappeared. But the idea would have been for Facebook to put a currency on the market that every user could use and buy and exchange, but that only certain companies 
could validate. And why do you want to be the one validating the transaction? Well, some people would like to do it just for the sake of it, but most likely you want to do that because when you validate a transaction, you get a tiny fraction of that transactions into your accounts. So you, there is a financial incentive. Third are the private blockchains, sometimes also called consortium blockchains. And here you'd need prior authorization even before you can you, you enter the blockchain and see what's what's inside. So if we create a private blockchain for the podcast, let's say, it would mean that you would give access to all of your listeners, but someone else could not actually enter the blockchain and see the transactions and even less so use that blockchain. So again, public permissionless is number one, public permissions is number two, and private blockchains are number three. And of course, if you are trained in antitrust or competition law, automatically, I'm sure the word privates and the issue of access will trigger questionings. I think private blockchains are more problematic when it comes to antitrust. It does not mean that they should be per se illegal, but you see more issues in the space. In your research, Thibault, you seem to place quite some importance on the notion of trust in blockchain world. Why is that? I hope I'm not the only one. And there are quite a few books and articles indeed. I believe that blockchain is not helpful when there is not a trust issue. So sometimes you hear about new companies, uh, you know, advertising new products and services as being blockchain-based, and it makes absolutely no sense. Already I mentioned the idea that you need someone to validate your transactions. That takes time. So if speed is very important to you, well, maybe blockchain is not what you need. However, if there is a trust issue, for instance, you need to trust that the information is correct, or you need to trust that you are part of an environment where no one can kick you out or change the rules, then blockchain is very much helpful. A concrete example would be the metaverse. And I guess we're all excited about this idea or, or scared maybe at the same time. But let me just take two examples here. Facebook reportedly is developing, uh, or should I say meta, its own metaverse. This one will be centralized, so pretty much like the social media we know uh, we know as of today. Uh, what it means is that Facebook will be behind it. Facebook will be in charge of collecting all of our accounts, will get access to our data, and Facebook will be in a position to change the rules. If you own a place, Facebook could just say, well, I'm going to delete that place from the metaverse for X or, or Y reason. Another type of metaverse would be decentralized and distributed metaverses, so namely metaverses that runs on top of blockchains. There are quite a few that you can explore after you're done listening to this podcast. If you go to Decentraland or to the Sandbox, you just Google that, and immediately you can access those metaverses, even without creating an account. And you will see the design looks quite funny, I suppose, but in any case, what's very interesting is that there is no single person behind those metaverses. What it means is that if you buy a piece of land on Decentraland, no one can actually take it back from you. And why is it important? Because it creates trust that if you invest in a space, you will be the owner of that thing that you built or bought and that no one could actually come one day and change the rules. So the idea of trust is, is central in the ecosystem, and I see no other way around but to 
investing in applications and services that are centered around this idea of solving a trust problem. Thank you so much for that very illustrative primer on what blockchain technology is and and how um, it can be divided into types and so on and so forth. Now, moving on to antitrust slowly. In one of your most read articles on blockchain and antitrust, you question already from the outset whether blockchain is the death of antitrust law. Can we talk about this, well, to me as a competition lawyer, seemingly very daunting prospect? Could you intro key challenges blockchain presents for traditional competition analysis? The trick is to answer in the negative. So it's a way to attract readers, but you will disappoint them, I suppose. And I was actually doing the exact opposite in that paper. I answered that, yes, blockchain is indeed the death of antitrust. And I'm more than happy to discuss the plenty of time I've been wrong with predictions, but I think this one is actually on the way of proving to be true. So let me explain. When I say the death of it, I certainly not argue that antitrust will disappear and that antitrust agencies will be incompetent or incapable of acting in the space. What I'm arguing in this paper is that antitrust will require regulations as an entry door because otherwise antitrust cannot apply in the space. So at the very end of this paper, I make an analogy with uh, jazz music. Uh, which I love. Uh, we can talk about jazz, but long story short, I think it's fair to say that jazz is pretty much dead. It doesn't mean that I can't go to a jazz club on a Friday night. And if you are in Amsterdam, I'm more than happy to take you to, to a few uh, good ones. So it exists, but jazz needs movies and external forces basically to be discussed and impactful in society. We don't hear about a new jazz album that will create you know, a massive cultural movement. And I think the same may happen with antitrust and blockchain, because indeed, if there is no regulation that will create the capacity for the regulator to enter the space, antitrust will be will be helpless. So I've discussed decentralization, distribution, the immutability of blockchain. I guess you could capture all of those concepts in the idea that there is no single pilot in the cockpit of the blockchain which is good because it means, again, that there is no trust issue. You do not need to trust one single person. But it could also be problematic if the plane is going in a direction that is anti-competitive or wrong, or if there is a bug, because no one, again, can change the rules of the blockchain. So if you see something illegal, let's say an anti-competitive behavior, uh, and you are an anti-trust agency, there is no single person where you could go that you could address and ask to change the rules. So blockchain is creating a barrier to enforcement. And I think that's why you need regulation in the space so that we can then apply antitrust. That's pretty much what the European Commission is trying to do nowadays with the Data Act. We could uh, again talk about that and the idea of uh, stopping the smart contract. But that's pretty much what I see in the space. Now on the more substantial level, there are lots of difficult questions we will need to to answer, such as defining market power. When you try to evaluate the market power of companies in the web 2.0 world, what you do is that you compare their turnover. And luckily, their turnover is comparable because it is expressed in US dollar or euro or a 
national currency that you can convert back to US dollar and euro. What you can do within the blockchain world is that you could take the value of each blockchain expressed in the blockchain owns token and convert that into euro or dollar. But as we know, those values fluctuate a lot. So what it means is that one day you can be seen as a blockchain that is super dominant and pretty much the next day or maybe even so the next hour, you can be seen as a blockchain that has no importance because the value uh, went down by 400%. So you see that the way we've been doing market definition and the analysis of market power in the centralized world is pretty much of no use when it comes to blockchain, or at least it should be complemented with a more technical analysis, which is scary. Uh, but I think there is no other way around because otherwise, just looking at the picture from a distance won't work in, in this type of ecosystem. Scary it is. I mean, I, I am a bit of a technology enthusiast, but not everybody is, and certainly not everybody in the competition world. Today, tech companies such as Google, Apple, Facebook, and Amazon capture much of the attention of competition enforcers and other regulators. Is blockchain destined to become the new trigger that will warrant even more of what we have observed in recent years? a fundamental, almost existential rethink of antitrust. You know, back to your previous point, I think the point is not to transform antitrust lawyers into computer scientists. We have computer scientists and they lack the legal expertise, which sometimes is, uh, you know, a big drawback in what they design. But I think the point would be for antitrust lawyers and in fact, any lawyers to reach a level that is good enough for them to be able to discuss with computer scientists and understand what's happening in the space. There are many resources you can use. Um, I think a good and a fun way is to listen to podcasts. And I think yours is very good for that reason, right? So already you get a sense of what's possible from a technical perspective. And if you want to, to go a step ahead, there are resources that you can use online. And as a matter of fact, I've done my best to list open access resources that anyone can use to learn about the technical aspects of blockchain and AI and computational thinking. So it's not that hard to become an antitrust or privacy or IP lawyer with good enough technical understanding. Now, back to your question, I think actually that big tech companies, they have not forced a rethink of antitrust. We use the same theory of the firm that Ronald Coase developed in 1937 the same law and econ approach that the Chicago scholars introduced in the 60s. We do not rely much on computer science. It's very rare to see that uh, courts will use computational power to better understand and analyze the case law or specific facts. We are making some progress, and you were very kind to mention the computational antitrust project that we are leading at Stanford University. You will see that antitrust agencies are investing the space, but for the most part, I think it's fair to say that antitrust, you know, has been pretty stable, which maybe is a good thing. When it comes to blockchain, though, the reason why it may force us to rethink antitrust, and that's the reason why I got interested in the space, is that blockchain and antitrust are complements. I think both of them seek to decentralize economic opportunities. So it's about the process, right, of competition. It should be that 
every company in the market position is in, in fear of being challenged. And if you consider that it is indeed the, the objective of antitrust law, what you may want to add to the mix is uh, blockchain technology. Let's take the Ethereum. It's the world's second largest blockchain. That is a layer one blockchain that anyone can use to develop app and services. And let's imagine that we are creating a social network that will run on top of the Ethereum blockchain. If we do so, because there is no pilot in the cockpit of the Ethereum, it means that no one at the Ethereum, whatever it means, will be in a position to sell preference or to discriminate or to refuse to deal, which is to cut access to the Ethereum layer one. All of that does not exist. Things will be different for private blockchains, but for the public permissionless, it does not exist. So most of the abuses of dominance practices will disappear. Not all of them, but most of them disappear. So you see already that if we were to move in a more decentralized blockchain-based economy, all the practices that are making the, the headlines of the press for the last 10 years, pretty much, will, will go away. So you see that blockchain is actually a ally to competition agencies. It doesn't mean that it does not create any competition problems. But all in all, the overall picture is that blockchain can help to further achieve the goal of antitrust. And I think that's why we may need to rethink the way we design antitrust, maybe to better integrate technology also in the design of remedies and in the analysis. When it comes to so-called gatekeepers, it's mostly about data and network effects. Is blockchain prone to similar concerns? Let's talk about Web3. The idea of it would be to design app and services that will run on top of blockchains, and in a sense, will be to move from platforms and aggregators, such as we know them, to protocol. Let me talk about a blockchain layer one called Steam, S-T-E-E-M, that you can use to plug social network on top of it. What's interesting to see is that there are indeed several social networks that function, as I speak, on top of the Steam blockchain. Steamit is one. Uh, DTube is another one, steampeak.com is another one, and there are plenty others. What it means in concrete terms is that if you want to use any of those social media, what you do is that you create an account not at the, at the app layer, so not at the social media layer, but at the layer one layer, at the Steam blockchain layer. You create the account, then you start with your account to use Timit or DTube. And if one day you want to switch to another one, you can certainly do so easily because your data is not stored in the servers of a, a company, but is stored at the uh, blockchain layer. So all you have to do is to redirect the data to another social network that works on top of that protocol. Hive is another example uh, of a layer one blockchain with many social media that runs here in the ecosystem. So what you see in a sense is that the network effect still exists, but not at the application layer, but at the protocol layer, which may free users and pretty much reduce the lock-in. So the idea that users will be 
locked into a bad social network or inferior technology because they have all of their friends and all the data and it's too hard and complex to to move and switch to another one. So that's the beauty of it. And that's why I think blockchain is very much interesting. If you are interested in those ideas, there are many resources you can use. One that I like very much is A16Z. It's a venture capital, but they make a good job at uh, explaining the, the ecosystem. Now, my fear, to come back to your question, is that the so-called gatekeepers would be in a position, and I think they are, to impact the uh, blockchain space. Because indeed, blockchain does not exist in a vacuum. So what it means here is that if you need, for the purpose of letting the world know that you have developed a social media called Steemit or D2, I'm sure most of the listeners were not familiar with those, uh, although maybe they are excellent. But if you want people to start using those, what you would need most likely is to actually go on the centralized social network, such as Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and, and many others, and to actually tell people that you have developed a decentralized social media. But if the centralized platform is prohibiting such advertisements, then you can see that the power in the centralized world is actually impacting the decentralized one, or at least you know, slowing down the pace of innovation. Uh, so I hope that agencies will become active in the space and, and try to better understand how Web2 could influence and compete potentially illegally against Web3, because I think this might be a, a reason for concern. Very interesting. In your extensive research, you have explored both the potential of possible abuses of dominant position on blockchain, as well as anti-competitive collusion. This is also very interesting, at least to me as a competition lawyer, but rather theoretical predictive exercise, isn't it? Or perhaps even some sort of a crystal gazing. Which theories of harm should competition authorities be most wary about when it comes to blockchain and why? So what I would say is that it depends, typical lawyer answer, in 2022, I think potentially the most important is to try to capture the practices where companies are using blockchain to abuse, let's say, their market power in the real space, in the so-called real space, because maybe we live in a computer simulation, uh, but that's a subject. <laughs> um, so what it would mean is that, for instance, you will see that supermarkets are colluding regarding the price of the orange juice, and what they could do is to use a smart contract for the purpose. Long story short, a smart contract is a potential transaction that you record on the layer one blockchain. And if the conditions are met, then automatically the transaction will be triggered. So you could say, if it rains, then I send you a Bitcoin. Or if this, then that. That's something I've tried to explore in, in the book, that indeed companies could implement different smart contracts and create a governance for their cartel that way. And this is where I think agencies could be more active because indeed, regardless of the fact that they use a blockchain or quantum computers or any tech that you want, if what they do is a success, meaning that they collude regarding the price of orange juice, then the prices will go up. And that is visible in the so-called real space. 
So agencies can certainly start from the real space, detect practices or patterns, and go back the chain and understand the way by which the companies have implemented the practice. So in 2022, that's where I would start. Now, in the future, if we move to a more decentralized economy that is blockchain-based, it will become increasingly important to try to capture practices that are impacting the inside of the blockchain. So here I'm talking about something different, not using blockchain for the real space, but abusing market power or colluding regarding the way the blockchain function. Wow, this is very intriguing. Some optimism, some pessimism, some opportunities, some daunting scenarios ahead. Thank you so much, Thibault. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, it's been a, a real pleasure to have a discussion with you. Mm-hmm.